You're listening to the Restoration Church Bible Study. Join us each week as Gloria Lee takes us verse by verse through the Old Testament. If you will turn to Ezra chapter 8, that's where we are today. Now in chapter 7, I want to just go over just briefly what we did last week. We learned that Ezra was sent by Artaxerxes and he was sent there to gather information for him. And he was sent with silver, gold, money, wine, wheat, oil, and salt. And the king wanted to appease the gods of Judah. And any, any country that they had, he wanted to appease the gods of that country because he felt like if he did that, that would be to his advantage. So um, he also stated there was a tax-exempt status given to the priest. Anyone that worked in the temple had, did not have to pay taxes. And where he, we got our taxes Yeah, I guess it is. And so he also wanted the Jews to be prosperous. That would be a good thing for him because he would get more taxes that way from other people. So we're starting now at chapter 8, verse 1 through 14. Now, these are the heads of the father's houses, or the chiefs of the father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. And I am not going to read all of these names because it goes on for quite a while. But these are the heads of the father's houses, and the list includes those who went up with Ezra from Babylon. And here Ezra begins to... uh, Tell, retell the story that he began in Ezra 7, 1 through 10. Now, there was a little, very little in Jerusalem that was attracting attention. Uh, the glamour that they had when they first went, and then they had a, a son of David as going with them, and yet when they came back, they were very disappointed. And so the interest of the forbidding list of names and numbers in this chapter then means that not too many people wanted to go there anymore. And so the ones that did were joining at last the ones that were there 80 years before. So it had been 80 years since the first group. In verse 3, there is a Shechaniah. And there were three by this name in these verses. Um, The first one is in verse 3, the second one is verse 5, and then the other one is Ezra 10, 2. All these are different men that have different fathers, so they're, they're not the same person. Adding the counts of the male members of the group together, there was 1,496 men. And then if you add in the wives and the children, they estimate it was about 5,000, maybe 6,000 people that went back. Um, Verse 15. Now, I gathered by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. Now, Ahava was a town that was northwest of Babylon, and it was kind of on the shores of this river called Ahava, uh, not too far from Babylon, but they can't even find it now. They have no, no idea where it was exactly. 
And um, I want you to digress just a little bit there because this river flows into the Euphrates. And I, I began to look at the Euphrates, and they say that it is drying up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's due to the dams that have been built before it. And so uh, there's also changes, they say, in the climate, and that's, that's causing the Euphrates to dry up. Do you have Revelation sixteen, twelve? Okay. And the sixth poured out his bowl upon the great river and the river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up, and the way might be made ready for the kings to come from the sunrising. Okay, so here in Revelation, it has been foretold that the, Euphrat- the Euphrates River is going to dry up. And we see that happening yes. now. Yes. The great river Euphrates, the Romans always thought that that was a barrier to protect them from the countries in the east from coming against them. In that day, it was 1,800 miles long, and it was about 300 to 12,000 yards wide. So it was a huge river. But it says in Revelation that the water dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, what does that mean? I looked that up, and it says that if the Euphrates is dried up and they can make roads, a road go through there, then they are uh, liable to the threat of China, Japan, and India, people coming there across the river, and they wouldn't have any problem getting across. So some speculate that the reason these armies would want to come westward would be to wipe out Israel. Another reason that some think is that they wanted to escape the Antichrist who had appeared upon the earth, but ultimately they came to do battle with God and his Messiah. So I thought that was just a little interesting uh, side thing about the river Euphrates. So it's still in verse 15. And I looked among the people and the priest, and I found none of the sons of Levi there. Now, of course, the Levites were a little different than the priests. The priests, of course, were Levites, but they were all from the line of Aaron. But the, the Levites were the workers of the temple. And this was what Ezra needed to promote. And he looked around, and he didn't see any priests, any Levites, I'm sorry, in the, uh, in the group. And he was thinking, well, we need to have some Levites. That's one of our purposes. Now, maybe they were too comfortable in living in Babylon, or maybe they didn't want to go back and be subject to the priests in the temple and do what they had told them to do. But whatever the reason was, Ezra had the money, and he had the authority of the priest to go back to the temple of the Levites to go back to the temple. And he needed particularly the the Levites. So um, Psalm 137, 1 through 6, would you read that? If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy... Oh, I did wrong. Yeah, I know that's it. Oh, 
By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive required of us a song, and those who plundered and required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So this psalm is relating back to the Levites. And what they did when they were by the river, they hung their harps on the river. And they said, we can't sing. And their captive, the ones that had captive them, said, we want you to sing. Sing us songs that, you know, entertain us. And they said, we cannot. Now, an interesting thing is there is a rabbinic midrash interpretation of this psalm. And this is a legend. I'm not saying it is the truth, but it is a legend that there were Levites in the caravan, but they were not qualified to officiate because when Nebuchadnezzar had ordered them to sing for him songs of Zion, they refused and they bit off the ends of their fingers so they could no longer play the harp. Now that's, oh. that's something that they were that, that upset because of what had happened to them. Goodness. All right. Verse 16 through 20. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ereu, <laughs> that's not right, that's Arael, uh, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshalem, leaders. Also, Zareb and Elnathan, men of understanding. So he has sent for these men, and I told them that they needed to go to Ido, the chief man at the place of Capsipia, and I told them what they should say to to Ido and his brethren and the Nephilim at the place Capsipia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Then, by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding, of the sons of Maha, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshah of the sons of Moriah, his brothers and his sons, 20 men, also of the Nethium, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, Two hundred and twenty Nethanim. All of them were designated by name. So with this, Ezra sent back to Babylon. And he said, Levites, I want you to come and join the work in Jerusalem. Because he did not accept failure at first. And he wanted to appeal through Ido. So he specifically chose the recruiters, the ones that were listed there, the nine leaders, the two men of understanding, to make this appeal and even told them what to say to, to Ido so that he could get someone, some of the Levites to come with him. All right, and here in verse 12, it says again, the good hand of our God 
was upon the recruitment era, effort, and it was also upon the planning of it. Several times in this scripture, we're going to see the good hand of the Lord was upon him. We saw that in chapter 7, where it said that Ezra, it was said of him, the good hand of the Lord was upon him. So we're going to see this uh, several more times in this chapter. Now, Ido, the chief, was the head of the rest, either by some kind of ecclesiastical order or government, whichever, that the Persian kings allowed to the Jews or it was maybe some kind of a grant from the king. So verse 21 to 23. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Avaha. I'm having trouble saying these words today. That we might humble ourselves before our God and seek for him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So here again we see he has said to the king, The hand of our God is upon us. And so we fasted, we entreated God for this, and he answered our prayer. So Ezra knew the importance of spiritual power of fasting as a demonstration of our devotion to God, our oneness to him, and his cause. And so he called this fast. Now he had expressed great confidence in the hand of God. And he did not want to contradict his words by asking the king to send him horsemen and soldiers because that would be completely, you know, the hand of God's going to take care of us and we're going to be fine, but we want you to send your horsemen and your soldiers. So that didn't go together with him. So they needed protection because there was a lot of real danger. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of goods. And they were going through land where there were bandits and robbers and thieves. And yet, because of their dependence upon God, which they said through prayer and fasting, God protected them. There's also an interest in the fact that Nehemiah, in his day, looked at things a little bit differently because he accepted a military escort when he came of horsemen and soldiers. So two different ideas of two different men. Verses 24 through 30, And I separated twelve of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them silver, gold, articles of the offering of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes And all Israel who were present had offered. I weighed into their hand 650 talents of silver. Silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold. 20 gold basins worth 1,000 drachmas. And two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also 
and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the house of God, Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders and the priests, the Levites, and heads of the fathers' houses of Israel in Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So they had this this um, treasure in their hands, and they had to keep it, is what Ezra told them. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Now he divided the valuables among the leaders of the priests, making each of them responsible for their portion. And they had to watch over them until they got to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, they had to go before the priests, the elders, the other people who had, had charge over Jerusalem and the temple, and they were counted there. Now, these are enormous sums of money involved in this that was millions of dollars worth of things that they carried with them. So the king of Persia sent great treasure to Jerusalem to support the work of the temple. Okay, verse 31 through 32. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was upon us. So again, we see that. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy from ambush along the road. And so we came to Jerusalem, and we stayed there three days. So here Ezra repeated what is now that familiar phrase, God's hand was indeed upon them to protect them, to guide them, and to bless them. So this ended the four-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. So they were now in the promised land. So verses 33 through 34. Now, on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Mirmoth, uh, the son of Uriah, the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, with them, with the Levites, Josabad, the son of Joshua, Noadiah, the son of uh, Beniah, with the number of weight of everything. All the weight was written down at that time. And there in Jerusalem, they expected a proper uh, accounting for what had been sent from Babylon. And apparently then they had to send back to Babylon an accounting that said everything arrived the way it was supposed to be. According to Babylon tradition, they wrote down everything. Um, They wrote down sales. They wrote down marriages. They just it took account of, of nearly everything. Well, didn't they find that recently? Babylonian yes. um, uncovered Babylon and, uh, and found all these accounts? Yes. That's awesome. Yes. That's cool. Yeah, that's, that's how they could go back and say, okay, the first king, Cyrus, said that we could build the temple. Well, they had to go back, and it was in the records. And so it was a good thing that they did that. Verse 35, the children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 99 rams, 77 lambs, 
and twelve male goats as a sin offering. And all this was a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, these burnt offerings were to perpetuate for general sin. Just anything that might have happened that was a sin, this was to cover that. And then it was also to show dedication to the Lord. So in these offerings, the whole animal was burnt. Nothing was kept for anyone, not even the priests. Now, though of the tribes there was only Judah and Benjamin, yet they offered a bull for every tribe of Israel as though they were present. And uh, Clark says there can be little doubt that there were individuals from all of the tribes that were present at that time, maybe even families that were from the tribe of Israel. Now, the reason for offering the 77 lambs, they're not sure. Some people talk about it as being that perfect number, doubled, and there has to be some meaning for it, but they're not sure about that. The sin offering was made mostly with the idea of purification, especially for specific sins of transgression. So taking both of the sacrifices together the burnt and the sin offerings, we can see they address the problem of sin, which is just the general sin, and then they address the problem of specific sin. There's two different kinds listed here. All right, verse 36. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps, or lieutenants, and the government in governments, governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God. So presumably the documents that accredited Ezra as the one who was authorized to administer the Jewish law among the Jews there was with him. So here we see him administering strict correction as a reformer. But that's not really why he came. He came to give support to the people. But when he got there, he saw that there were problems with sin, and he knew that he needed to do something about that. So are there any questions or comments on this chapter? Okay. We will go to chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers had been foremost in doing this trespass. So it seems like the leaders and the priests were the ones that did it the most. They married the foreigners, the Canaanites. So after his arrival, you know, Ezra saw these things. He had brought them gifts and everything, and then he got this discouraging news. And the spiritual condition of this group of people was bad. 
I mean, they had just come out of exile. They should have learned before that this is exactly the same thing that God had punished them for in the first place. And, they and here doing they're they, doing they were, it all over again. There were the Levites. What the heck? Yeah, yeah. And so they had intermarriage with surrounding pagan communities. And it wasn't that this was the only problem. But as these communities intermarried, then there would no longer be areas that was untouched by idolatry in the pagan associations, in the business, in the, in the government, and in the social life of the people. They're all going to be touched by that. Now, uh, the commentator says, this shows that the problem was not primarily ethnic. The problem was that they didn't separate themselves from the abomination, specifically the idolatry of the people. So all of this was, it says, a testified abhorrence, not merely of the act of having taken strange wives, but also have joined in their idolatrous abominations. So not only did they marry the ones that were Canaanites, but they also took on their idolatry. This is the priests and the Levites, mostly. So with this forsaking of Jewish identity and, and, and the least partial embrace of idolatry or at least tolerating idolatry in the community, in a few generations, there wouldn't be any pure Jews. They would all be mixed. So during this obscure a portion of history from the temple, which we don't have any remains, the religious exclusiveness that marked that conduct of the returned exiles when they refused the help of the Gentiles, which was a good thing, to help them in rebuilding the, the temple, then they, their freedom went so far as to go into idolatry. So, worst of all, the leaders of the community were the ones that were the leaders in this sin. And, of course, they were leading in the wrong direction. So, God didn't make a general prohibition of interracial marriages. This is what, uh, let's see if I have the name. It's the general uh, person with whom I, I use most. Gutsy, I think, is his name. So there are those who try to make out, he says, that interracial marriages are against the scriptures. And he says that's not so. He said it's only for the Jews that God commanded not to marry interracially with these inhabitants of the land. But even Boaz, you know, the great-grandfather of David, married a Moabitess. So we see it happening. And from that, of course, Christ was in that line. But the prohibition was not to marry the people of the land, lest you turn to their gods and turn away from the living God. So verse 3. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Now, he had expected to find something completely different when he came back to Jerusalem. And so one of the reasons for this mourning expressed in the tearing of his robe and the pulling out of his hair 
was that, as we remembered, it was these sins of idolatry and compromise that caused the exile in the first place, caused God's wrath upon them and his judgment. Here they are, they just came back. And they came back and did the exact same thing. How many times do you have to go around the mountain? You know, mm. That's what they say so many times. Mm. And he had no doubt wondered how the people could endanger, how could they think that they could be okay and do this again? So astonished means to be appalled, to be stupefied. Um, he says, rare is, Yamauchi says, rare is a soul who is so shocked at disobedience that he is appalled. So both Ezra and Nehemiah were confronted with this sin of pagan intermarriage. So here we're going to compare Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah, in 1325, you have that? Yes. Okay. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. Okay, so here we have Nehemiah. He didn't tear out his own hair. He tore out the hair of the people who were sinning. Veered everything. Plus a lot of other things. So that was a different. Ezra pulled out his own hair. Nehemiah pulled out their hair. Verse 4. Then everyone... Between the ruler and the... There's a difference between the two men here. Mm-hmm. Verse 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. There were those in the community that were also horrified by what had been going on in their community. And they gathered together with Ezra. And here were the the exiles that were brought from Babylon, though most of them were actually now born in Judah, but the real spiritual sense was they were carried away captive by their sin of partnership with idolaters and idolatry. So when it says he sat down astonished, that means he was grieved and he also had a lot of shame, partly because of the fear, because they were doing the same thing, and he expected God to do the same thing. He had once punished them. He's going to punish them again. Verse 5 through 6. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said... Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. So Ezra knew there was a time to mourn, and he did that for a long time. He also knew there was a time to pray, and this is what he is doing at this time. So the evening sacrifice was done at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And when Ezra prayed, he alone prayed, and yet he was standing in front of all of these people. So in a sense, he was praying for them, and, and they were joining in with him so that their prayer would be together. So his prayer is designed to guide their prayers. 
Uh, Ezra was one of many in the Bible who prayed on his knees. He, it says Ezra also spread out his hands to the Lord. And this was a common posture of prayer in the Old Testament. But even though his hands were raised, his face was to the floor in shame and humiliation before the Lord. So he sensed that the sins of the people of Israel had so weighed his head down so much that he couldn't even lift his head up because he says our iniquities are higher than our heads. So ashamed and humiliated. The first word ashamed speaks of being ashamed and the second one is the pain of knowing that you were uh, humiliated. Uh, Ezra prayed saying, our iniquities instead of their iniquities. Because what he had done is he had associated himself now with the people. He had nothing to do with their iniquities. But he took it on as his own, as a group of, of people who were in covenant with God. Um, verse 7 through 9. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. And he leaves us a remnant of escape, and to give us a peg... In his holy place. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? Giving us a peg in his holy place. So that God might enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. But he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of the God to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So Ezra recognized the sinful past of the people, how the exile was a righteous work of the God, and how God had been so gracious to them. And then he reflected on the remarkable goodness of God in bringing a remnant of people back from exile and allowing them to live in the promised land. Now, to give us a peg in his holy place, this is an idea that Israel once again had a safe place standing in God's favor and in his temple. Now, in those days, in their houses, they didn't have cupboards, they didn't have closets like we do. And so what they did is they had pegs all over the walls. And each peg had something designated that they hung their cloak on something and something else. They, they, they just had pegs everywhere. Yeah. And so they stored everything around the room. And if something was on its peg, it was safe and secure. It was there. They could find it the next time they were looking for it. It was stored properly. So only a few days Before this, Ezra had seen the temple for the first time in his life, and he was impressed that God had given his people a peg in his holy place once again. 
it was there. They were safe. They were secure. It was there for them. And therefore, they were afraid that their casual disregard for this blessing could once again stir up God's wrath against them. So in verse 9, it says, To revive us and repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall. So he was impressed that by all these signs of God's mercy and his favor to his people, God had been good to his people, and it was dangerous for them to be in this type of sin. Um, Some critics take this as a reference to a wall, as an argument against, well, for the priority, I guess, of Nehemiah over Ezra, but that's not true. Um, To give us a wall, they had a fence of protection from Persia because Persia was over them, and so they had that protection. And then they also had God's providence as a protection, a wall of fire around them. Thank you for listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. If you would like to watch our message live or looking for more information about our church, visit us. Follow us on Facebook, Restoration Church.